Hello and welcome to the Interactive Investor Podcast, where we discuss matters of investment interest. I'm Richard Hunter, Head of Markets, and in this episode, in which we'll be talking gold, I'm delighted to be joined by Diego Perilla, author of The Anti-Bubbles, Opportunities Heading into Lehman Squared and Gold's Perfect Storm. Diego is Portfolio Manager at Quadriga Asset Managers, who are headquartered in Madrid. Prior to joining Quadriga, he worked in London, New York and Singapore for two decades and held senior leadership roles across macro commodity markets at JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, Merrill Lynch, Bluecrest Capital and Diamond Asia. Diego has been a guest contributor to media such as Financial Times, CNBC and Bloomberg TV and holds master's degrees in mineral economics from the Colorado School of Mines, petroleum economics and management by the French Institute of Petroleum in Paris, and mining and petroleum engineering by the Madrid School of Mines. So first and foremost, a very warm welcome to you, Diego, and thank you for spending some time with us. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's my pleasure. So first of all, um, why gold and why now? Well, it's it's been uh, it's been gold for for a little while now. <laughs> the case has been there uh, long long before now. Uh, coincidentally, today we're making all time highs in in dollars. But this is a story that has been brewing for for a long time. Uh, and perhaps it it's a good idea to bring in the concept of uh, anti bubble, which I I coined in in my second book, and which basically uh, and to understand that concept the 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 simplest ways to start with uh, the definition of what's a bubble. And I like to borrow George Soros' definition of a bubble, who presents them as assets that are artificially expensive based on a belief that happens to be false, what he calls a misconception. So bubbles are, in a way, cases where the emperor had no clothes. You have this artificial setup. What I did is to, with the concept of uh, anti-bubble, is I generalized the framework of uh, Soros and said, misconceptions distort reality, but not only through artificially high valuations, you could also have artificially low valuations. So the first dimension of the concept of anti-bubbles are assets that are grossly artificially cheap based on a belief that happens to be false. So in that sense, it's a matter of when, not if, that the value of the anti-bubbles will go up and conversely, the bubble will implode. So we're talking about a case of extreme value. You're talking about something that is artificially cheap. The second dimension of the concept is the idea that anti-bubbles are very effective hedges against bubbles because they are effectively two uh, mirror, distorted mirror images of exactly the same misconception. So they are effectively following the same process. And as, as a result, excuse me, when the um, misconceptions understood and the bubble bursts is the exact same instant that the anti-bubble reflects. So in that sense, I called it anti-bubble, a bit like an antivirus or an anti-missile, and hand in my heart, I was thinking more about computer viruses than uh, necessarily COVID, but uh, it's actually worked uh, really well. And, and the third dimension of this concept, which is relevant, is uh, there's an element of risk 
premium. The idea that uh, basically the market, uh, this relationship between bubbles and anti-bubbles, it's, um, it, 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 it's, they're not independent processes, they feed on each other. So if you think about, uh, as, a, as an example, uh, the S&P as equity valuations and volatility as the VIX, there's a very clear uh, bubble anti-bubble relationship where we might see that um, you know, high valuations in equity markets could uh, be partially uh, driven by very low uh, volatility, this uh, complacency or perception of low risk. And conversely, when implied volatility goes up a lot, it exposes some of the inherent risk and, and uh, valuations collapse. So the beauty of this is that the market is actually giving you the cheapest insurance when you need it the most. So we needed, you know, insurance with the S&P at 3,400 and, and the VIX was at 10 or 11. That's the time when you want to buy that, not necessarily when everybody was chasing it at 2,400 and let's say 80 volt. So uh, with this idea of anti-bubbles being uh, value, uh, artificially cheap valuations, second, an effective hedge against the bubbles, and third, an element of risk premia where you're getting paid while you wait and being a contrarian. The question for gold is, or bubbles and anti-bubbles in general, the key thing is, what's the belief? And if you find the belief, if you find the misconception, then you can identify where the bubbles and anti-bubbles are. And in this case, uh, I would argue that the belief and the misconception is that central banks and governments can actually solve problems by effectively printing and lending and borrowing. This idea that you can print and borrow your way out of a problem is effectively a misconception. It is not true, it's not, and we've, we, we have plenty of cases. So what happens in this process is that uh, faced you know, with, with, with a problem, and uh, we can go back to 2008 or, or, or before, Central banks effectively reacted with what, what at the time was considered to be unconvention, unconventional monetary policy, bringing interest rates to zero, effectively printing money so that you could buy government bonds, you know, effectively lending, printing money and lending it out to governments so that they could uh, you know, cushion the effect of, of the strong deflationary forces. And uh, as it tends to be the case, you know, these temporary measures become permanent, what was unconventional becomes you know, conventional. And, and we've seen this process of monetary, uh, which is a contagious and, uh, uh, process uh, where you know, we've seen Europe, for example, introducing negative interest rates. All this uh, process, which is trying, desperately trying to, to resolve these problems by printing and, uh, and, and lending and borrowing, doesn't really solve the problems. All it does is it delays these problems. It just kicks the can down the road. It transfers these problems. So through currency wars. So uh, you know, country A decides to try to um, uh, devalue their currency and push those problems away. And three, transform these problems. And so I would argue uh, we could summarize the last decade um, in one sentence. Okay. It was the transformation of risk-free interest into interest-free risk. And this is very important to understand because, you know, we went through a process where there was this belief 
that you know just by bringing interest rates to zero and adding debt it was sustainable and then we woke up to the reality in 2000 you know q4 2018 that as you tried to normalize monetary policy uh, the system would blow up today the idea of hiking interest rates is science fiction you know half of the system or more would collapse immediately think about what the world would look like with interest rates of five percent it's just completely game over at the government level at the corporate level at the consumer level so we this this last decade all it did is it created a series of global synchronous bubbles you know starting with fixed income where you went from 10-year bonds paying you five percent to 30-year bonds at negative nominal yields effectively inflating the 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 valuations to beyond what anybody could have thought and beyond the zero uh, threshold Uh, but obviously now you're discounting um, uh, cash flows at artificial low interest rates therefore you're inflating any cash flow driven assets whether it's equity or, or credit or others we've desperately gone and tried to capture the liquidity premium and so in that process we didn't fix anything. We just delayed and created these big bubbles to the point that today, uh, and, and this is pre-COVID, by the way. I mean, the, these ideas are not COVID-driven. Um, we, we had a, a situation of um, pre-existing fragility. You know, you had a situation where the system was very vulnerable. And every time you had a threat or a crisis, uh, you would basically be forced to do more of the same. And that more of the same in central banks coming back with even more printing and even more lending and even uh, more borrowing, which has expanded from governments now all the way to high yield. So if you look at this situation and you fast forward to the next 10 years, I I would summarize the next 10 years as the transformation of bubbles that are too big to fail into inflation. This is just the inflation is at the center of, of the, the thesis in gold. Uh, but, you know, and inflation effectively, it's important to, to understand that inflation uh, is not uh, about, people think that inflation is about asset prices going up. You know, my house went up, the price of bread went up. No, inflation is about the value of the money that you used to buy your house and your, and your bread going down. And the minute you understand that inflation is about the value of money going down because of trillions and trillions of <laughs> printing and lending and, and bad use, then effectively all real assets get that, that, that boost. And I think we're in that situation where governments and central banks have no choice and they will have to continue to do that in a desperate attempt to prevent those bubbles that they created or helped create on the first place from collapsing. And the, big, the next step forward, so that would apply to, you know, bananas and real estate and gold and anything, you know, all the physical assets could potentially go up. But gold is unique. Gold is the monetary asset of, of excellence. And I think gold is set not only to protect against inflation, which is a, a, a big, one of the key themes in the next uh, decade and in currency wars, but it's, it's, um, it's also the ultimate anti-bubble for the fiat currency bubble. And, and that's something that will continue. So you, you mentioned uh, gold up up or pretty much at uh, record highs, let's say one, somewhere around $1,935, up about 26% or so in the year to date. From what you say, that very much looks like um, on, on a sort of longer term basis uh, that in terms of a 
for want of a better phrase, a target price, uh, you've got a much higher price in mind? Yeah, look, I've, I've, uh, I used, uh, the world is, is probabilistic, okay, it's not, uh, it's not deterministic, so every time you put a, a target, people just tend to be, okay, this is it, it's black or white. Um, no, the world is probabilistic, and you need to think about it as, as, as probabilities. But I, I did publish an article which was called uh, Gold's Perfect Storm. It was on the front page of the FT in the, in the summer of 2016. And, and I was calling for gold at three to 5,000 in, um, in the next three to five years. A view that I, I, I maintain and that I, uh, I think, in fact, the, the arguments that I was using at the time um, have, in fact, been far, not only uh, strengthened, I mean, been reinforced uh, or, or proven, they've actually been reinforced. So the thesis is very much there. I think um, uh, you know, now that we are at all-time highs, it, 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 will, it will probably take a little effort to, to break these levels. Uh, and it's all-time highs in dollars, by the way. We had broken all-time highs in every other currency uh, a long time ago. Um, and, and, and this process, I think, is likely to open a new uh, dynamic for, for gold, which, um, you know, it's, it's not so obvious what that, that value will be. But... You know, my three to five thousand with gold at eleven twelve hundred sounded like science fiction at the time, um, and I think that's that happened also with my with my first book, the energy book, where oil was at one twenty, the world was calling for peak oil at two hundred, and uh, in two thousand thirteen fourteen I was calling for thirty to fifty oil. So some of these forces, some of these dynamics, is not it's it's about the process, it's about the forces at play, then. The gold price is just a number, okay? So in that sense, it could go anywhere. And my three to 5,000 look science fiction at the time. Now it might even look conservative relative to, <laughs> to some people's uh, forecasts. I think the general theme uh, and the important thing to understand is, is why, which was your first question, why is this happening? And, and, and there are lots of different metrics that you could put on try, trying to assess the so-called uh, fair value of, of gold. I think an important thing is directionally to understand, you know, which, where is this going? What are the drivers that, that might continue to, to play? And, um, and understand that, you know, as I always say, the rule number one of the investment game is they will change the rules. So <laughs> you need to play this game understanding that things uh, are changing. And, and, and there are lots of, as a, we're currently living in a historical moment and I think that the uh, dynamics um, are changing, and, and uh, inflation uh, coming in is 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 a game changer, and uh, and we need to. And I'm challenging the, the 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 rules of the game as they're established in the textbooks at the moment. I mean, uh, very often in moving beyond gold, people would argue, "Hey, um, you know, you, you, if 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 inflation uh, goes up, then interest rates will go up, and and bonds will collapse and and i think this is something we need to understand that interest rates cannot go up that's that's just a bounding condition uh so we're in a situation where by by the the new rules of the game is they can't go up because then the whole system implodes so in that sense what you might see is in my view low interest rates so in the us for example we might see a follow-up of what's happening in europe or japan uh, and inflation. 
So this paradigm of low interest rates and inflation is in, in some ways a, a game changer and it challenges the, the conventional rules of the game and it's obviously in, incredibly constructive for things like, uh, like gold. Um, so uh, beyond, amongst other defenders that have contributed to, to my strategy being best performer in, in the world in February and over 55% in the year, um, you know, despite, which is it's just much more than gold. I think the concept of anti-bubble is much more generic and it gives you scope in, across multiple defenders. And I think volatility, insurance, gold, um, treasuries are all great uh, potential defenders to the portfolio that can be managed uh, as a team. So, so that's fascinating. So putting your, your portfolio manager hat on, I mean, obviously, there's a number of ways to access gold all the way from physical to exchange traded funds, even indirectly by investing in mining stocks, for example. But the traditional uh, kind of perceived wisdom has been that you'd probably hold something like 5% uh, of gold in, in your overall portfolio. Um, are you suggesting potentially that that figure could or should be higher? Well, there's several questions there. So let, let me start with the implementation and then the, the percentage. Um, with the implementation, there are a number of misconceptions in my view, um, and, and people need to be careful about this. Uh, one of them is the notion of paper gold. Okay, so uh, some of the uh, gold bugs would argue the only way to play gold is physical, and paper gold is, is, is terrible. Uh, be careful with that. I mean, they, they, you could have a situation where uh, people have the crazy idea of buying physical gold and selling gold futures, thinking, oh, uh, you know, this is real and the other one's paper. Well, be careful because uh, gold futures could trade very, very substantially or much uh, substantially higher than, than, than physical gold for a simple reason is if for the sake of argument, we had, um, you know, 1 million units of physical gold in the entire world and we had 10 million units of gold futures. People look at it from the perspective, oh, you bought something that doesn't exist. Okay. But if you think about this, who has the problem? The guy who bought something that cannot be delivered or the guy who sold something that cannot be delivered? And what would happen if the 10 million uh, longs decided to take delivery of the 1 million uh, of, of, of ounces? So there's 9 million people who promise to deliver something they cannot get their hands on. So you get a, an old-fashioned uh, squeeze, which... It explains why gold futures could trade very, very substantially higher. And, and to give you a sense of how uh, far this could go, you just need to look at oil futures at negative prices. So you can't just tear apart uh, a contract like that. Oh, oil is negative. No, mate, I will let you out, whatever I want to let you out. And that could mean that the, uh, the, the, the shorts had to buy back, uh, you know, effectively create a, uh, the longs had a big problem. So... Uh, be careful with that idea. I do agree that uh, the, the good uh, one of the key aspects of gold is, is physicality and the fact that you cannot print it. But it doesn't mean necessarily that physical gold is is the only way to do it, and that um, paper futures or other way might be a pr might be bad. In fact, it could it could burst in your face. The second is is, is gold equities, and and here um, look. 
there's also a common belief that um, gold equities are like a call option on gold, you know, and, and I did my thesis in, in real options and I understand the, the space very well. You have the right, but not the obligation to, to extract the gold and, and et cetera. So it, it is a call option, but there are some risks to, to, to be mindful of what I would call Robin Hood. Okay. This is uh, taxation, expropriation and nationalization. And once again, uh, you just need to look at the oil market to, to understand uh, what could happen. So in, in uh, 2007, when oil went to 140, taxation in, in, in West Africa in, in, in the production sharing agreements reached 99%. So if you were invested in the equity, you, you literally had no upside and you had all the downside. So uh, I think there are fantastic managers and fantastic opportunities in the gold uh, uh, equity space, but you just need to be mindful of, of that, uh, that risk. And, and that could explain that you could easily have gold at 5,000 and the equity at zero. Okay. So in, in fact, if you ask some of the gold miners, they will want gold to go up, but not too much. Okay, because uh, it becomes too precious and then it's going to be an asset that governments will want to claim. And I'm not finger pointing in Africa or Latin America, but it, it's, it's something that becomes very interesting. And it's the foreigners that are taking our assets. It's a very easy case to, to expropriate uh, assets. So, um, so having said that, I think this is part of the reason why, you know, there are opportunities across the different precious metals, the mining, the options different ways to do that and that's what what we do uh, as a percentage i think the key thing is to to I, I use an example i use the analogy of a football team okay and and the investment game being a football match okay um, and and the issue is that many people think that this is a game that you win by scoring goals okay the idea of investing is is related to making money okay so richard here's a hundred grand invested for me they're implicitly telling you make money for me okay? yeah can you just now the reality is that football is not just about scoring goals okay and uh, it's also about defending and keeping the ball and and goalkeeping so likewise you know to me the two rules of the investment game is capital preservation and compounding on capital preservation you know without capital preservation there's no compounding doesn't matter how much income or whatever if you've destroyed your capital uh, and, and we saw an extreme example going back to gold miners in February, March, there was a, a gold mining ETF that was three times levered. Okay. JNUG. Uh, and there are other cases you would think as a uh, naive investor that gold is a great goalkeeper. I should have some money in that gold equities are an even better goalkeeper, let's say, because they are more explosive and then if I lever that up, then even better. So I get like uh, golden steroids uh, to the power of N, right? It's equities. And then so unfortunately, what happened in March is uh, these uh, positions, these ETFs sold over, uh, lost over 90% of their value. So uh, as, as gold was under pressure and gold miners collapsed three times levered. Now, for the sake of argument, if this thing traded down to seven cents, and then the market doubled in April and May, you're at 14 cents on the dollar. So be very, very careful with leverage, whether you're going crazy on the gold futures or any other form of leverage in the ETFs, levered ETF or whatever. And this is um, a very big consideration. Look, 
we're now entering a very volatile phase. People might get carried away and there will be very big drawdowns, okay? So leverage is your enemy. Whatever you do, you need to make sure that you can survive those drawdowns, okay? So having said that, I do think that from a medium long-term perspective, gold has a, a very important role to play. I think 5% has been uh, a commonly used number, but I, my view is that uh, going back to the football analogy, the first question you need to ask is what position do you play? So if in this particular case, uh, your, your business, your wealth, your job, it's striker. So if the world is a great place, I have my job, I'm making money, my, 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 my businesses are making money, then you're a striker, right? And, and what happens is traditionally people have their illiquid wealth and, and jobs and, and others in, in, in strikers, where most, most people are strikers, right? They will do well in, when the world does well, unless you're a lawyer who doesn't care about anything. In fact, they benefit from the crisis. Uh, so unless you're a lawyer, you're a striker. Let's put it that way. Uh, to, you know, exaggeration, of course. Um, so the problem with this is that your, your liquid financial portfolio uh, is often invested in equities and credit and high yield and EM and commodities and private equity and private debt and venture and whatever you want. They're all strikers. So not only you're a striker, the entire portfolio is a striker. And this is one of the key risks in the system that I call false diversification. Is the idea that you think you're diversified because you have a bunch of different things in the portfolio. But the reality is that you have one trade. And when March came, every single asset collapsed at the same time. So the fact that, you know, all the assets were collapsing and my fund was up, you know, 10% in February, 19% in, in, in March with correlation minus one is, 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 is the role of the goalkeeper I'm talking about. So I would argue that depending on your profile, your financial portfolio should be more or less, uh, you know, the, the important thing here is to balance offense and defense. Yep. So my initial point would be 50-50. Okay. But there are, there's going to be many cases where the investor is, is a striker, where his financial portfolio should be 100% in defenders and goalkeepers. What's the point of a Spanish construction guy putting his liquid money in uh, high yield? What's the point? Good. If you want to take risk, take it in your own business. And if you're putting money aside, put it in something that will cover you if things go wrong. It's as simple as that. Okay, so once you have your your liquid financial portfolio, that you need to ask yourself, what's my point of indifference? What, what, where, where am I neutral? And once you have that, you need to create the right team and delegate. And this is not just about teams of strikers. You know, uh, 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 Messi, Lionel Messi is an incredible player. Now, a team with eleven Messi's would be terrible. Mm. Okay, uh, so it's not really about finding eleven Messi's. It's, it's understanding you know, the, the power of the team. So in that sense, I think gold is one of those great players, but we need to be mindful of the leverage. We need to be mindful of the implementation and we need to do it uh, in, in, in the right uh, weights. And, 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 and I think in that sense, what we are humbly hoping to do is alongside with other uh, great managers who do it in different ways is to, to basically uh, complement that team. So we are, um, you know, you're outsourcing uh, a know-how and skill set that may be much superior to just uh, passive allocation to 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 some some instruments. 
Well, there have been some absolutely fascinating insights there, Diego. Uh, thank you once again for your time. That really has been uh, a terrific podcast. That's Diego Puria, who's Portfolio Manager at Quadriga Asset Managers. Uh, and thank you for listening. Do join us next time for another interactive investor podcast.